Well, Merry Christmas Eve. Everybody doing good? Um, those three songs that we just sang there were all top shelf songs, Christmas songs, I believe. And we're going to talk about one of those throughout the message. But um, I've never been really comfortable preaching certain messages. Uh, and Lee, you'll see these, this isn't in my notes. Lee gets my notes every week. So this is just off the hip here, but Easter, Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, there's certain things that you're supposed to preach on, and I've just never been real good at that because it's, I feel like it's, I'm saying you have to teach this, and you, this is the day you have to teach this, and I struggled and struggled and struggled about this message, even though it's probably the most simplistic message that we can even think to hear or speak or teach, because it's it's the significance of what we're celebrating is the birth of Jesus Christ. And so it should be very simple to just preach a message on Matthew and, and, and uh, Luke and go over you know, some of the prophecies in the Old Testament. And I, I kept coming back to this concept about the significance of the birth of Jesus. And what does that look like? Um, what, did that look, what did that look like in history? And, and what did that most recognized day in history that we celebrate, what did that fulfill or what did that kickstart this, this, this birth of Christ and how did that day almost or over uh, 2,000 years ago, how did, that, how did that day affect mankind? And, and how, does, how, does that, how did that day, how does that affect me today? And I just thought, I, I went back in that room there, and I don't always do this, but um, I, I kind of, my prayer life is not something that is, I'm not a prayer warrior, like we have several prayer warriors in this church body, and I'll confess to you, I, my prayers are usually thanking God for the beautiful animals and, and not asking for, for, uh, for guidance, but I, I got back there, I said, God, please help me preach this message in a way that's going to hopefully hit the hearts of whoever needs to hear it this, uh, this evening. And I kind of came to this, this conclusion as I was putting this together that um, the best thing for me to do is to just preach what I have here, and then when the rabbit trail kicks off on one angle, I'm going to take it, and we'll see where it goes. So um, I wrote here, Jesus was the plan of God from the beginning to, bef- to be fulfilled for our salvation. That Jesus was the plan of God from the beginning. And we have this Bible study that we do, a men's Bible study, and recently we started talking about, um, we're going through the book of Romans, and we started talking about, uh, somebody brought up the concept of the Trinity, and and, um, some religions don't believe in the triune God, and I want to go to John chapter 1 and and look at that uh, before we, or as we get into the the message, but John chapter 1, and uh, let's see, where are we here? John chapter 1, I'm going to read 14 verses, and and I'm not going to read fast like I typically do, but um, if you have your Bibles, great. If you have your cell phone that you read, your your iPad, whatever you read off of, and if you don't have anything to read off of, I didn't print notes today, uh, but I want you to follow along with me. In the beginning, this is John, the Gospel of John, the fourth book in the New Testament. In the beginning was the Word... And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him not anything 
made that was made. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who, do not, who did receive him, he belie- who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word, I'm going to go back to the very beginning real quick. In the beginning was the Word, in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Back to verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I've often studied with people and the beginning of the conversation oftentimes when I get that opportunity to study with somebody about the Bible is um, they're interested in studying the Bible and they they confess to me that it's just a really difficult book to understand. This, This book that I hold near and dear and that many of us hold near and dear uh, that it's a difficult book to understand and there's, there's you know, all these letters and all these authors and, and there's this timeline and this period. And, and I start out by telling them God in His infinite wisdom has exposed and preserved His plan in the written Word and kept the basics very simple. Very, very simple. The entire Bible, this entire book, it's three subjects. It's three subjects. Now, there's a lot of sub-subjects and all that underneath those three subjects, but there are three subjects in this entire Bible. The first subject is the creation. We see that in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. The creation of the universe, the creation of man. Man and woman. The second subject is the fall, and we see that in Genesis chapter 3. You've read about the story of the fall of man. That's the second subject in the Bible. So the first three chapters of this entire book, 60, is it 66? 66 books, letters, epistles, history, prophecy, poetry, 66 of them. Of this entire book, the first two subjects are found in the first three chapters. The creation and the fall. The rest of the book, from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, all the way to Revelation, is the third and final subject. And that third and final subject is the redemption of mankind. The redemption of mankind. That's what the entire Bible is about, from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, all the way to the book of Revelation. Genesis 3, 15 says this, and I looked up plenty of commentaries to see if they would back up uh, whether or not I was reading it and understanding it correctly, but Genesis 3.15 says this. This This is the Lord God saying to the serpent, 
He, he says, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And then he says this in verse 15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, of all the commentators that I've read, all the studies that I've done on this one Bible verse, there are four commonalities between everybody, when they, when they, everybody that I've read anyway, it's the majority or the mass majority of them all believe this. The first one is that enmity, and the word enmity is just a state or feeling of being actively opposed or hostile to someone or something. That's what enmity is. And he says, enmity will be between you and the woman. So enmity will be between the offspring of Eve and the offspring of the devil. The second most agreed upon point is that the seed of the woman refers to the ultimate fulfillment of Jesus Christ. The third is that the bruised heel of the seed of the woman refers to the crucifixion. And the bruise, the fourth is the bruised head of the serpent speaks of the final judgment of Satan. Now, I'm not going to get into end times eschatology. I'm not going to get into, we're not a commentator type church or whatever. What I'm saying is most people believe that this is what this Genesis 3.15 is, and it is talking about Jesus. It's talking about Jesus Christ. It's talking about his death, his burial, his resurrection, his redemption of mankind. So from Genesis 3.15 on, the entire Bible that talks about the hundreds and hundreds of prophecies, the hundreds of prophecies that speak of the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Redeemer, the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, are found from Genesis 3.15 on. The stories that we hear, the stories that we read in the Old Testament, the stories that we read in the New Testament, but specifically the stories that we read in the Old Testament are all pointing us to the very fact that God wants us back. It's the redemption of mankind. You can read the story of the flood and you can see a redemption story. You can read the story of Abraham and Isaac and there's a redemption story. You can read about Joseph and how he's led into the, sold into the Midianites, and then he goes and he's in jail, and then he gets released. And Genesis 49 is the gospel message. You can read about there in Egypt. You can see about Pharaoh and Moses and the plagues and the Israelites, and it's a redemptive story. You can look at the Red Sea crossing, and it's a redemptive story. Uh, he spared David. He spared Solomon, Deborah, David, Goliath, Ruth, Boaz. The stories in the major prophets, the stories in the minor prophets, are all redemptive stories. And so this entire book from Genesis 3.15 on is talking about Jesus constantly. And the goal is for Jesus is to reconcile himself back to us and redeem us from the curse of sin and the guilt, the guilt of sin. So when I, when I think, like, what am I going to preach? And I'm like, well, just preach the basics. This was why we celebrate this amazing day. And I look at all of these people that I've just read about or just talked about and Story after story, he's using unlikely people to show how he brings redemption back. How he brings humanity back into a relationship, back into a loving salvation relationship with him. We talk about these unlikely people. I requested that song, the last song that we sang, Oh Holy Night. I'm going to skip just ahead for a second of my message. I must have listened to 15 different versions of Oh Holy Night on my computer. YouTube, you name some fancy singer, some famous singer, 
and I listened to them on sing O Holy Night. I read their lyrics, and Therese, I don't know where you got the lyrics, but it is the only set of lyrics that was actually accurate to everything I found about the original O Holy Night. All of the other, you, you actually did the second, the second grouping of, what do you call that? You got the, the chorus, no, the chorus is the one that is constant, right? What's the, what's the first section and the second section? Verses? Verses? The stanza? I obviously have never led worship a single day in my entire life. But you're the only one, you guys are the only ones that, I've, that in all of them actually read the second set. They always went from the first one, which is, uh, where are we here? The first one, which is... Uh, the stars are brightly shining, and it's the night of the dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world's sin and air pining, and then fall on your knees, O night divine, O night when Christ was born, O night divine. And then they skip the part about the shepherds and the king of kings, and they go right to the third one, which is truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love, and his gospel is peace, the third one. And so I was, I was looking, I'm like, I wonder what he's going to play. Well, you, you sang the one that goes back to uh, a man named uh, Placide, Capo Rockmore. He was born in 1808, October 25th. And he was known for his talent in writing poetry. And his uh, poetry writing was well known, but he was not known very well for his church attendance. He was actually an avowed atheist who left the church. And he was so gifted, however, that a, a, a priest asked him to write a poem uh, write a poem about the Savior's birth for a Christmas Mass, a Christ Mass. And this man, Placide Capo Rockmore, was a cooper. Does anybody know what a cooper is? I figure there's a few. A cooper was a person trained to make wooden casts, barrels, vats, buckets, tubs, troughs, and other similar containers from timber staves. So a woodworker, essentially. Well, when he was eight years old, he was playing... Uh, with a friend of his, and his friend had a gun. And it shot Placide in the hand, and his hand had to be amputated. So back then, most sons followed in the footsteps of their father in the work that they had done. Well, he couldn't do that. He couldn't be a cooper. And so the boy who shot him, his father helped pay for Placide's um, education. He paid for half of it. So he followed an academic career instead. He went to the College Royal de Avignon, and despite his handicap, I'm going to read a little bit of what I had found. Despite his handicap, he was awarded a first prize in drawing there. He studied literature in Nimes. He studied law in Paris and was licensed to practice law in 1831. Instead, he became a merchant of wines and spirits. But his focus was really on literature. He might not be the first person one would expect a priest to seek out to write a poem for Christmas Mass, considering he was said to be an atheist, but the priest did ask him, and the man took his request seriously. So Placide Capot de Rochmore began thinking about the birth of Jesus. With that inspiration, he wrote Cantique de Noël, which is Christmas Carol. Placide was so pleased with how the poem came out that he decided it needed to be a song. Since he was a poet but not a musician, he turned it over to his friend Adolphe Charles Adams, 
to see if he could set his poem to music. Raise your hand if you've heard this story. Okay, just one, right on. Everything I'm saying is 100% true, okay? <laughs> I did check it quite a bit, and every source kind of came down to all of this, what I'm reading you. So he said to his friend Adolph Charles Adams to see if he would set his poem to music. Adolph was a famous classical musician who had composed many works all around the world, but he agreed to come up with music for his friend's poem. The interesting thing was that Adolph was a Jewish man who did not celebrate the birth of Jesus. Even so, he did compose music to go with the beautiful words, and the song was performed only a few weeks later at a midnight mass on Christmas Eve. Cantique des Duel became popular in France and was sung in many Christmas services, but when it was discovered that Placide Capot, Rockmore, disavowed the church and joined a socialist movement, and when it was also discovered that Adolf Adams was a Jew, and not a Messianic Jew, but a Jew that didn't recognize the birth of Jesus, the French Catholic Church leaders decided Cantique des Noël was unfit for church services because of the lack of musical taste and, quote, total absence of the spirit of religion. So it was barred by singing in the church. They no longer allowed it to be sung in their services. However, the French people continued to sing the song at home. A decade later, an American writer named John Sullivan Dwight saw something in the song that moved him beyond the story of the birth of Christ. John Sullivan Dwight was an abolitionist. He did not believe in slavery, and he strongly uh, identified with the lines of the third verse, which we sang today, tonight. Truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love, and his gospel is peace. Change shall he break, for the slave is our brother, and his name and in his name all oppression shall cease. This verse mirrored Dwight's view of slavery in the South. He published the English translation of O Holy Night in his magazine, and the song quickly found favor in America, especially in the North during the Civil War. Back in France, the song continued to be banned by the church for almost two decades, while the people still sang Cantique de Noël at home. Legend has it that on Christmas Eve 1871, in the midst of fierce fighting between the armies of Germany and France during the Franco-Prussian War, a French soldier suddenly jumped out of his muddy trench. Both sides, both sides stared at the seemingly crazed man who lifted his eyes to the heavens and began singing Cantique de Noël. Then a German uh, soldier stepped into the open and answered the Frenchman's song with Martin Luther's From Heaven Above to Earth I Come. The story goes on that the fighting stopped for the next 24 hours while the men on both sides observed a temporary peace in honor of Christmas Day. The story gets better. I hope you're following along. The story goes on that years later on Christmas Eve 1906, a man named Reginald Fessenden, a 33-year-old university professor and former chief chemist for Thomas Edison, did something long thought impossible. Using a new type of generator... Fessenden spoke into a microphone, and for the first time in history, a man's voice was broadcast over the airwaves, and it came, and this is what he said, and it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. He began in a clear, strong voice, hoping he was reaching across the distances he supposed he would. Shock radio operators on ships and astonished wireless owners at newspapers were amazed as their no, normal Coded impulses, is it Morse code? Their normal coded impulses heard over tiny speakers were interrupted by a professor reading the Christmas story. 
To those who caught this broadcast, it must have seemed like a miracle to hear a voice somehow transmitted to those far away. I still don't understand how phones work, but I can talk to somebody in, in Africa, and I'm talking to them right now. Can you imagine how they felt back then? Perhaps they may have thought they were hearing the voice of an angel. Fessenden was probably unaware of the sensation he was causing on ships and in offices. He couldn't have known that men and women were rushing to their wireless units to catch this Christmas Eve miracle. After finishing his recitation of the birth of Christ, Fessenden picked up his violin and played O Holy Night, the first song ever sent through the air via radio waves. Isn't that awesome? Oh my gosh. I, when I heard that story, I had lunch with a guy in Fruta, and he told me this story. He goes, my preacher told me the story last Sunday. I said, well, I, I think I've got to preach that. That is just a fantastic story, that the first radio song that we hear on a violin of radio waves was O Holy Night. Since O Holy Night was first sung at a small Christmas mass in 1847, the song has been sung millions of times in churches in every corner of the world. And since the moment... A handful of people first heard it, played over the radio. The carol has gone on to become one of the most recorded and played spiritual songs. Don't miss this. It's the whole point of the story. This incredible work requested by a forgotten parish priest, written by an atheist poet who would later split from the church, and given soaring music by a Jewish composer, as well as brought to Americans to serve as much as a tool to spotlight the sinful nature of slavery as to tell the story of the birth of a Savior has become one of the most beautiful, inspired pieces of music ever created. The Lord can work in amazing ways to get His Word proclaimed and to get His will accomplished. He used an atheist to write, a non-believing Jew to compose, one of the most popular gospel message Christmas songs in history. I follow the news a lot. I read articles and I listen to talk radio that tells me about what's going on in our crazy, sometimes seemingly hopeless world. And I have to remind myself that I need not worry. Because the birth of Christ led to the salvation of mankind. When all seemed bleak and hopeless, there was 400 years of silence, of prophetic silence. 400 years of prophetic silence from Malachi to Matthew. And he broke up that silence by sending his son into the world so that the eternal consequence of sin could be remedied. And although we live in some very dark times, we must remember that the birth of Jesus ushers in the plan that God has had to redeem His creation back to Himself from the beginning. And this is where it gets real for each and every one of us. If God can use an atheist to write, if He can use a non-Messianic Jew to compose, to spread the word of the Lord and the significance of His birth, what can God do with someone who believes in His word? What can God do for someone who trusts and recognizes that Jesus is the King of Kings? And not just a cute little nativity scene. The birth of Christ is hope. Hope that Christ can use us. Hope that 
sacrifice is sufficient to redeem us from the curse of sin. And this all started with the hope found that we read in Matthew and we read in John. The hope that's found in the birth of Jesus. My prayer, my prayer back in that room, I know Brian's shortest sermon ever from Nate Porter, I get it. I don't know what the time was on it, but my prayer is that everyone in this building right now, this bricks and mortar, this church body that's meeting together, recognizes Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, when it says, and we all know this verse, we've all heard it in every Christmas, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will, shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That is what we're celebrating tonight. It's what we're celebrating tomorrow. This evening, if you want to talk about what does that look like for me, Steve's here. He'd love to talk to you about it. Dennis is here. Rod, my dad's here. We've got plenty of, plenty of people in this room. Peg's here. Brenda's here. Rachel's here. Ryan's here. We've got Rick's here. We've got, we've got people that will talk to you if you question, like, what does the birth of Jesus mean for me? Because it was a powerful, powerful day that changed the course of eternity. We're going to take communion together. Uh, if you're a guest here, you're uh, welcome to take communion. That is a, something between you and the Lord. Um, I always go to 1 Corinthians when counseling that to people. If you take communion, you need to recognize what you're doing. Recognize who Jesus is. Um, and then afterwards, we're going to have a candlelight uh, service after communion, and we'll just light candles along the edge here and... and uh, and then we'll close with uh, a song. Sound good?